Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. And the guys have some Bibles. They have come up front and they're going to make their way toward the back. And if you'll get their attention, they'll get you one of those Bibles so that you can follow along as we continue our series in the most famous of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus gave to his first followers. Matthew 5. Lawyers have an adage that says, if you have the facts on your side, then argue the facts. If you have the law on your side, argue the law. And if you don't have either, then attack the prosecutor. Now, in my lifetime, I've seen this play out on the national scene many times by candidates running for office or those who were already in office. And locally, most of us saw in the last decade the spectacle of Kwame Kilpatrick joining the parade of political leaders claiming that the accusations against them are politically motivated. In the former mayor's case, as most of you know, there were thousands of incriminating text messages between him and his mistress proving that both had lied under oath. When confronted with what most people would consider to be irrefutable evidence, his honor at first said the messages weren't his. When that didn't work, he said they were taken out of context. When that failed, he said the prosecutor shouldn't have had them in the first place. And then when that collapsed, he attacked the prosecutor as being politically motivated. You know, it does appear that the first refuge of a liar is to play the victim. Now, sometimes an individual is accused, and it turns out later that they were, in fact, innocent. But how many times have we heard those who are caught red-handed, loudly and defiantly and with righteous indignation profess their innocence only to be proven guilty just a few months later. When people are caught lying, they lie about it. When they are proven to have lied, they try to change the subject to focus on the accuser. When they can't get away with either and are finally made to admit their dishonesty and wrongdoing, they admit as little as possible and play the victim. We've seen it so often that we come to expect it. Almost no one just flat out admits what they've done. If you watch a a cop show on TV, whenever they have the, quote, person of interest in the interrogation room, how many times will you hear the accused say something like, with hand raised, I swear I was nowhere near the scene of the robbery. And by the end of the show, our oath taker is seeking a plea bargain. But it's not just politicians and criminals who are serial prevaricators. We learn to lie at a very young age. One of the first sentences a child learns is, it wasn't me. That's why Bill Cosby says, if you only have one child, you're not really a parent. Because you always know who did it. Our struggle with the truth is not only seen when we're trying to save face or trying to save our skin. It extends to the so-called little white lies. Biblical counselor Lou Priolo has written a little booklet called Deception. We have a a handful of copies of that in our, our resource center. In it, he quotes an article from advice columnist Ann Landers in which she had asked her readers to provide what they think is the third biggest lie that people tell the third biggest. And that's because the first two are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. 
And the second one is the check is in the mail. But here are the candidates for the third biggest lies. It's really delicious. I just can't eat another bite. I'm so glad you dropped by. I wasn't doing a thing. You know, you don't look a day over 40. The baby is just beautiful. This one, undoubtedly from a husband to his wife, put the map away, I know exactly where we're going. (laughs) And we could all add many more, couldn't we? Like, how about, I was just kidding. You know, friends, if you chuckle when you insult someone, it's still an insult. Now, I have to admit, there are times when people have been brutally honest with me, and for personal reasons, I wish they hadn't been. I've told some of you this story in the past about our youngest, Annie, when she was about five, and she went through a period of time where she was dissecting every word that she uttered to make sure that it was true, and she was just anguished often about whether or not she had told a lie. She and I had this thing going where when I would see her, I would sometimes say, Annie, you're beautiful, and she would respond, you're handsome. And I had done that on a particular day. I said, Annie, you're beautiful. And she said, you're handsome. But then sometime later she came to me and she was crying and there was this anguish on her face. And I said, Annie, what's wrong? And I'm holding her. And she says, Daddy, I told you I think you're handsome. (laughs) But I really don't think you are. She still lives in our home. (laughs) Now, seriously, the, the disposition of deceit is deeply rooted in all of us. That's why the Bible says through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And in Jesus' day, the deceptive heart was given license to lie by, of all people, the religious leaders. The religious leaders had devised schemes that allowed people to break their word without being accused of lying. I'll explain in a bit how it was that they did that, but notice what Jesus says in verse 33 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to be here. The health to be here, the desire to be here, the freedom to be here. And now, Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts. Help us to have clear minds and open hearts to receive your word and to be changed as we leave this place. Better to reflect your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus says, do not swear an oath at all in verse 34. And it's interesting that he says that because the Bible actually commends oath-taking a number of times. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. In Numbers chapter 30, when a man takes, makes a vow to the Lord, he must not break his word. And again in Deuteronomy, 
If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. And then lastly in Leviticus 19, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. So why is it that Jesus is saying we should not do something that God had commanded to do? Well, remember, as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount over these last several weeks, remember back in verse 20. If you'll take a look back in verse 20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious leaders, that is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in the next verse, verse 21, Jesus begins six illustrations of how their version, the religious leaders' version of righteousness is deficient. While they had developed meticulous external regulations to keep God's law, they had missed the heart of those laws, restricting the commands of His law so that they meant less than they was intended and expanding the permissions of the law so that they meant more than intended. So in verses 21 to 26, Jesus says it's not enough to avoid the act of murder. You must not have hatred in your heart. And then in verses 27 to 30, he says it's not enough to avoid the act of adultery. You must not have lust in your heart. And then in verses 31 to 32, as we saw two weeks ago, Jesus says you have no right to divorce except on very strict grounds. Rather, you're to keep your commitment to your spouse, and that commitment, by the way, is also an oath before the Lord. Jesus is saying that what you have heard from and seen modeled by the religious leaders is a perversion of God's law, and you must surpass their righteousness, he says in verse 20. He's not saying that you must surpass their meticulous external observances. The truth is, you wouldn't be able to do that if you tried. But rather, you have to go beyond the external to the internal. From avoiding murder to avoiding anger. From avoiding adultery to avoiding lust. From engaging in divorce to maintaining your commitment. And now he's telling us, you're to go beyond taking oaths to actually being honest with every word you utter. What the religious leaders had done, predictably, is they had developed a system that defeated the very purpose of having oaths. They said that oaths were not binding if they did not include God's name or did not imply God's name. So if you swore on your life, I swear on my life I will do X, or I swear on my life that it's true, or if you swore on someone else's life or on some object, I swear on the king's throne or some such, They said, as long as you did not mention God's name or allude to it, it was like making a promise with your fingers crossed. It was not binding. There's an ancient document called the Mishnah, which was compiled before the time of Jesus, and so it existed at the time Jesus walked the earth. It was a written catalog of traditions that had been handed down by Jewish religious leaders, and it contained a whole section devoted just to oaths and when they were binding, and when they were not. And according to one commentator, the swearing of oaths had degenerated into a system of rules as to when you could lie and when you could not. And the results were incredible. There was an ongoing epidemic of frivolous swearing. Now let me just stop here for a moment. When we say, I swear, swearing in this message, I'm not talking about cursing, but rather taking an oath. I swear this is true, or I swear I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
He says there was an ongoing epidemic of frivolous swearing and oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. So people would swear oaths by your life or, I'm not making this up, by my beard. Or may I never see the comfort of Israel if I fail to or if I do. And he says there was an inevitable trivialization of everyday language and integrity. It became common practice to convince another that you were telling the truth, but all the while lying, by bringing some person or eminent object into reference. For instance, one rabbi taught that if you swore by Jerusalem, one was not bound, but if you swore toward Jerusalem, then your oath was binding, evidently because that in some way implied the name of God. And all of this produced in the people a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. I'm not telling the truth, but I'm not lying. Now, let me encourage you not to worry yourself too much with trying to figure out the rationale for all of these convoluted rules that they had. The point is this. They were looking to get by on a technicality. Now, we may think, wow, how preposterous. Who would do that? Some may remember that uh, some years ago we had a sitting president who, under oath in a federal court, said, quote, It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. One person said, All of this perverted the purpose of oaths. Instead of calling on God to assure their honesty, they phrased their oath so as to avoid God's punishment when they spoke falsely. They wanted a license to lie. And the goal of oath-taking was to guarantee truthfulness. But the rabbis, the religious leaders, substituted the goal of getting away with deceitfulness. And so Jesus removes it altogether from common communication when he says in verse 34, do not swear an oath at all. They said if you swear by God's name, it's binding. But Jesus said whatever you swear by invokes God because he created it all. And that's why he says in verse 35, The end of verse 34, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. So if you swear by heaven, you invoke God because it's his throne. If you swear by Jerusalem, you invoke God because it's the city of the king. If you swear by, verse 36, the hair of your head, you invoke God because he rules over our heads. So verse 36, do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now, some of your ladies are saying, really? This obviously is referring to natural hair color that cannot be changed. All oaths call God as our witness, and therefore all oaths are for the purpose of telling the truth rather than finding a way to get around the truth. Now, we've inserted, as we do each week, an outline in your program. And if you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look at that. Because from now, Jesus' teaching here about truth-telling, in all circumstances and in all ways, we want to see a couple of things. The first is this. We need to recognize our tendency to lie. We all need to recognize our tendency to lie. We see our tendency to lie in the fact that God himself took oaths. I'll repeat that. We see our tendency to lie in the fact that God himself took oaths. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But for now, let's see the fact that God did indeed take oaths. 
Genesis 22, he says to Abraham, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, God confirmed his promise to Israel with an oath. And then in Psalm 132, of God to David, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. So why does God do something he tells us not to do? John Stott says this, it's not to increase his credibility, but to elicit and confirm our faith. Daniel Doriani says this, God does not take oaths because his credibility is in doubt. Now hear this, but because we, having told and heard so many lies, have learned to be doubters. We're accustomed to breaking our word and having others break their word to us. Therefore, God knows that we need assurance of his reliability. He knows that our standards are so low that we expect falsehood from everyone, even him. So for our sake, he takes an oath to guarantee his word. And that's why I said we see our tendency to lie in the fact that God himself took oaths. God would have no reason to take an oath if it were not for our deceitfulness and our expectation that people often lie, and perhaps even he might lie. So we need to recognize our tendency to lie, and I say in your outline, that lying is pervasive. Lying is pervasive. Because it's so pervasive, we find ourselves having to emphasize the fact that we're telling the truth when that should be assumed whenever we open our mouths, if you think about it. The fact that God took oaths is testimony to the fact that we're accustomed to lying and being lied to. But what do our oaths show about us? They show that we don't think that we can be trusted. So we have to give some extra oomph to our promises. So take, for example, a father who says on Thursday to his child, if you help me clean up the yard today, I'll give you ice cream on Saturday. And the child may reply, do you promise? Now the request of the child for a promise is a testimony against the father. It shows that the child has learned that she cannot entirely trust her father's word. In the past, she's cleaned up the yard but never received the ice cream. When the child would point that out to the father, he'd say something like, I forgot, something came up, or, this is, this is perfect, put it on them. You should have reminded me. So the child's learned to seek a guarantee. And so when she says, do you promise, she means, do you mean it? Can I count on you? And so Jesus says in verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So friends, those who know us, particularly those who know us best, should be able to trust us without any embellishments on that. One group, a religious sect in Jesus' day, said this, He who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. So private oaths to those who know us should be completely unnecessary. Now let me briefly talk about public oaths. Is it okay then, given Jesus' words here, for Christians to in public take an oath? When we go into a courtroom and we're asked to solemnly swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, or nothing but the truth, is that okay? Just as an aside, that addition of swear or affirm, the affirm part was added because of concerns about people of sensitive conscience to the very words of Jesus here. 
But Jesus is not here, I don't believe, prohibiting public oath-taking. Hear this. We can take oaths on occasions when those who hear us need it, since they don't know us and, as we've already seen, they assume falsehood. It's the people who know us in everyday conversation who should have no need of an oath from us. And you see this kind of public oath for people who don't know you actually done by Jesus. In Jesus' trial before Pilate, here's what the Bible says in Matthew 26, the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so, under oath. And then Paul, writing to the Romans, says, God is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Therefore, what Jesus is saying here is not, contrary to what many sensitive Christians over the centuries, a group in particular called the Anabaptists, uh, the Mennonites, some of you are familiar with church history, know that they believe that Jesus prohibited all oath-taking. But rather, what Jesus is doing is he's prohibiting taking the invocation of an oath to show you're telling the truth when people should be able to assume that about you. Lying is pervasive. And that's the reason oaths exist at all. And I say again in your outline, it's not only pervasive, but lying is varied, varied. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn to the first part of your Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, so even if you're not familiar with fumbling around in your Bible, you should be able to find Genesis 3, it's toward the front cover, very first book in your Bible, Genesis in chapter 3. And I want us to see together those lines that I have in your outline, those blank lines, are a number of the various kinds of lies that we tell. From Genesis 3. Many of you know Genesis 1 and 2, God has created the, the first man and the first woman. He's given them very clear instructions about what they're to do and about what they are not to do. But then in chapter 3 of Genesis, we find the first outright lie told in human history. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice that subtle shift, by the way. You must not eat from any tree. He said you can eat from every tree, actually. There's only one tree that you cannot eat from. But verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent says an outright lie, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So here he is doing one of two things. He's either questioning the certainty of God's promise, you shall not surely die, that is, I wouldn't be so sure of this dying deal that God's offered you, Or he's using the assertiveness of the word certain to oppose and even mock God. You surely, most certainly, will not die, the serpent is saying. So that's an outright lie. That's the first type of lie, number one in your outline, outright lies. But then here are some others, and we see some of these in Genesis chapter 3. The first one's an outright lie, but then secondly, there is insinuation. Insinuation. And you see 
Satan insinuating something about God in verse 5 of Genesis 3. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Satan's trying to do here is to cast doubt over God's character and his motives. The implication is God's being jealous in some selfish sort of way. The serpent is saying to Eve, God's keeping something very special from you. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He has this special knowledge, but he doesn't want to share it with you. Insinuation. Now, there are lots of ways to insinuate something about the character of another person. You know, if I say, uh, if, I, if I'm with you on Saturday, and then on Sunday I come to church, and I'm talking to some folks, and your name comes up, I say, you know, I spent, it comes up, I, I spent several hours with him yesterday, and you know he was sober the entire time. Now, what does that imply? Immediately, people are thinking, well, is that an exception? And of course, what I said was true, right? You were sober the entire time, but I insinuated something about you. You can insinuate something about another person even without speaking a word. So if I say to someone, he's a really great deacon, and you just kind of go, eh, tilt your head, eh, And that, of course, elicits a request for more information. Oh, you don't think he is? I don't want to say anything. You've insinuated something, have you not? But you haven't actually said anything. But, in fact, you've said plenty. And so here's a third type of deceit. Concealment. Concealment. Verse 5 again of Genesis 3. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Now, the serpent, Satan here, concealed something very important from Adam and Eve. He did indeed uh, say that God knows when your eyes are open that you will know good and evil. And, and that was true to an extent. And in fact, we see, we will see that in fact their eyes were opened. And like God, they knew good and evil, but they knew good and evil. Now hear this, this is important. In a different way than God did. And he concealed that. God certainly knows the difference between good and evil. But God's knowledge of good and evil is not firsthand. God has never experienced evil. God has never done evil. But you will know evil not only intellectually but experientially and it's going to mess your life up. But that was concealed from Adam and Eve. So there are outright lies, insinuation, concealment. Here's another. Blame shifting. Blame shifting. And again, we see this in... Genesis 3 and verse 11. And he said, God did, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman. The woman you put here. So I am blame shifting everywhere. I am blame shifting to her. I'm blame shifting to you because you gave me a defective model. And she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Tree and I ate it. 
And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And then it goes on, and the first thing out of her mouth is the serpent. So for Adam, it's the woman. For the woman, it's the serpent. And immediately there is this blame shifting. Now hear this. As Lou Priolo says in his little booklet on deception, to the extent you attempt to dodge your own culpability by fallaciously shifting the blame from yourself to another, you're being dishonest. And here are some examples. I wouldn't get angry at my wife if she wouldn't nag me all the time. Blame shifting. I wouldn't have been rebellious if my husband weren't so tyrannical. I only snuck out because dad doesn't give me enough freedom. Here, this one. I wouldn't lie to my parents if they weren't so distrustful of me. Outright lies, insinuation, concealment, blame shifting. Here's another, a fifth one. Exaggeration. Exaggeration. Johnny Erickson Tata posted this on her blog earlier this, this year. Examples of folks speaking in exaggeration. I can't believe my pastor preached for a whole hour and a half last Sunday. Now, by the way, I've never preached for an hour and a half. She says, translation, the pastor preached 10 minutes longer than usual, which cut into my lunchtime. In our case, cafe community time. Or someone says, our junior high group never does anything interesting, and our youth leader is really boring. Translation, the junior high group doesn't plan activities that I enjoy participating in. Or someone says, it rained all day and I got soaking wet. The translation is, it sprinkled lightly, my hair and sweater got slightly damp. And she says, sometimes we exaggerate to puff ourselves up in the eyes of friends, playing a competitive game of topping each other's stories. Other times we feel insecure and we slant the facts to grab people's attention. Sometimes we play the actor and exaggerate just to add color, drama, or gain sympathy. Whatever the reason, if we do not tell a story the way it happened, we end up hurting ourselves because people will never have a chance to get to know the real person behind the exaggerated stories. When I was a kid, I used to spend my summers playing baseball with my friends just about every day of the summer. And the baseball field in my town, Ecorse, I grew up in Ecorse, and then I always add, I live to tell about it. And the baseball diamond that we played on had a creek that ran along that divided Ecorse from Lincoln Park. And every now and then, some Lincoln Park, we have any people that hail from Lincoln Park? No offense. No, I intend offense. Listen. The, these Lincoln Park kids would show up on the other side of the creek. And they would start throwing rocks at us. Now, of course, we never started this. All right, I just lied. We started it sometimes. <laughs> and there would be rocks going. And so it would be kind of one of those medieval things. You know, we had, we, we had catapults that sent stuff over. And in all the years, we were throwing whatever we could find at each other. And the Lincoln Park kids, I never got hit by anything. Now, I'm thankful that the Lincoln Park kids couldn't throw. And none of my other friends ever got hit by anything. Except this one kid. Every time we got into a war with the Lincoln Park kids, every single time, he went down with an injury. And he'd be writhing in pain, and we'd go to check on Scott. And after a few years of this, I thought, you know, Scott's making this up. 
There's no way the same person could get hit all the time. He's exaggerating these injuries, and why is he doing that? It gets special attention for him. Here's a sixth form of lying. Empty promises. Proverbs 25 says this, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. Over the years, I've had many an occasion for someone to be a guest at at church. And as they're leaving, several people over the years have felt the need to somehow impress me with what they can do for our church. And they start telling me these things that they've done in the past and things that they could do for our church. And, you know, I thank them and say, "That, that would be terrific. And then they leave, and then I never see them again. Empty promises designed very often to impress, but without the ability or sometimes the willingness to carry them out. Here's another, seven, pleading ignorance. Pleading ignorance. Now, before I move on to the pleading ignorance, I want to give some other examples, I'm sorry, of the empty promises. And there are, there are several, and they're important. That's why I don't want to skip it. Here's an example of an empty promise from a child to a parent. I'll pay you back as soon as I get my allowance. Or here's one from a parent to a child. If you do that again, I'm going to spank you. And then after the child does it a second time, I told you, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. The child does it yet again. Don't make me tell you that again. Now, parents, there's something very important here. If you say you're going to do something, then follow through with it. And so don't say, I'm going to hang you up by your ears. If you're not going to do that, if you say I'm going to hang you up by your ears, then I want to see your kid hanging by his or her ears. Or a husband to a wife. The husband says, we'll go on a date next week. Or I'll fix it this weekend. Or we'll talk about it when I get home from work. I'll call you the first chance I get. Or a wife to a husband. I won't spend more than $50 for that item. Or an employer to an employee. We can't afford to pay you much right now, but if you'll just hang in there with us, as our company grows, we'll reward your faithfulness. And very often, those are empty promises. And then there is seventh, pleading ignorance. You see this in the fourth chapter of Genesis. You need not turn there, but this is the account of Cain having murdered his brother Abel, and the Lord asks Cain, where is your brother? And he pleads ignorance. I don't know, he says in verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? And we should not be in the business of pleading ignorance. In fact, there are some things that we have a requirement to be knowledgeable of. Let me just give you some of those. We should be knowledgeable about what the Bible says about everything. We have a requirement to know God's word and then to live it. So pleading ignorance, I didn't know the Bible taught that, when God has given us His Word and given us aids to His Word and teaching from His Word. So we should know what the Bible says. In our homes, we should know what the the rules are. And our children should know what their conduct should be as Christians. These are things in life that we're obligated to know. And as soon as we recognize our ignorance in a particular area, we're obligated to seek and acquire the knowledge that we do not have. Now, there are many other forms that we could go into. Manipulation, deflection, not just blame shifting, but deflection. You're caught at something and you say, yes, I do that, but, quote, we all do. 
I'd love a dime for every time I've heard that, but we all do. Deflection or slander, passing something on without knowing it's true or even if it is true to someone who can do nothing about it. And so, friends, you can see that this is indeed pervasive and is indeed varied, this lying. And Proverbs says this in Proverbs chapter 10. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. You know what that means? That means that we need to regain the sense that our words are sacred. Your ability to communicate came to you from God. And you were made by God with the ability to communicate and to receive communication. And the words we speak need to be chosen carefully and deliberately because our words are sacred. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, we will be judged for every careless word spoken. Now, secondly in your outline and quickly. We need to recognize our vulnerability to deceit, to lying, but we need to embrace God's requirement for truth. Embrace God's requirement for truth. The Bible is very clear in many places about God's requirement that His people tell the truth. Proverbs 12, the Lord detests lying lips, but delights in men who are truthful. Proverbs 13, the righteous hate what is false. Psalm 119, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law, says the psalmist. And so we embrace God's requirement for truth. And here's why. Two reasons in your outline. First of all, He, God, is truth. The very character of God is such that He cannot lie, the Bible tells us. He is truth. And the opposite is the the enemy, Satan. And the Bible says this of him. Jesus said, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And yet of God, Jesus said, your word is truth. And so when we lie, hear this now, we are following the characteristics of another father, the devil. Why should we embrace God's requirement for truth? Because he is truth and he is our father. And that's what I say secondly. We are his children. We are children of light, that is, we are children of truth. And so Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So when we lie in any of the ways we've listed, and all the other ways we could have listed, we are indicating that we are not acting in accord with the character of our Father and we as His children. In your take-home truth, I say Christians are completely honest, reflecting the character of their father. Now, we have to quit. But friends, let me encourage you to do a few things. One, ask yourself, am I a child of the father? If you are in the habit, of, if, you, if you are ongoing in, in the ongoing habit of lying, In whatever form, it calls into question whether or not your father is God, the God of truth, or the devil who is the father of lies. And you only have one or two spiritual fathers. Did you know that? One of two. It's either God or Satan. 
So examine yourself as to whether or not you are truly a child of God. And if the answer to that is, I'm not, you can become a child of God today by embracing who Jesus is and what he did. And so we tell you every week that you need to realize that you're a sinner and recognize that Jesus died for your sin, paid the penalty for your sin, and repent then of your sin and receive Jesus Christ into your life. And he gives you his spirit and now a desire to show the characteristics of your father, God, in the way you speak. So ask yourself, am I truly a child of God? And then having asked that, if I'm a child of God but I'm struggling with this and I want to rid myself of this, identify your particular way of lying. We've gone through several. You go down the list and maybe several of those are characteristic. Maybe one of those is characteristic. But whatever it is, identify your characteristic way of lying and then do this, lastly. Identify the idols that motivate you to do that. Underlying your doing that are some idols that have gripped your heart that cause you to speak to get attention, that cause you to speak to cut others down in order to elevate yourself. Identify what desires have gripped your heart that cause you to do that. And then ask the Lord to replace those desires with godly desires, spiritual desires. And he promises to do that very thing. Let's ask the Lord to help us then. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to be in your word and to be convicted by your word. We thank you for the relevance of your word to us, the way we live day by day and moment by moment. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who changes us from the inside out. May we make changes this week in accord with what the Lord Jesus has told us in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.